morning. It's really great to be able to join with you this morning. It's such a privilege and a pleasure to be able to join with you as a fellowship and just share a little of myself and share a little of your life as a church together. And I look forward to sharing a bit more with you as the morning goes on. Isn't it great that we can come together on a Sunday morning, spend some time worshipping God, focusing uh, on his presence, focusing on what he has done for us, focusing on who he is, to take just that time aside out of a busy week for probably most of us, to just spend time in his presence. And I hope today that's what we'll be able to do. To help us to do that, we're going to sing our first song, which is Jesus Calls Us Here. So hand over for our first song. Let's stand and sing the first song. As we come to worship, as we come to experience God's presence with us, let's turn and pray together. Lord God, I thank you that you are our God, and I thank you that you love us. I thank you, Lord God, that you showed that love to us by sending your Son to die for us. I thank you, Lord God, that you call us into a relationship with you. I thank you, Lord God, that you have redeemed us and that you continue to redeem us, and that you call us into a reconciled relationship with you. I thank you, Lord God, that you have created this world, that you love this world and everything that is in it. I thank you, Lord God, as we come to gather on on a day that's full of sunshine, as we move between seasons, Lord God, we see the beauty of your creation, and we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord God, for everything that you've done for us in in our lives. I thank you, Lord God, for the many blessings that we experience in this country. I thank you, Lord God, for the many blessings that you've put in our lives through friends and family and relationship. I thank you, Lord God, 
that ultimately you sent your son to die for us. And that is the biggest blessing that we have. And as a promise, as a guarantee of that, you've sent your spirit to be a presence in our life. Lord God, as we continue through this service, I pray that you will be with us. I pray that you will open our ears to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that we will have open hearts as we approach you. I pray, Lord God, that we will not leave this place without having an experience of you, without being changed in some way, without being challenged, that we will leave this place closer to you, closer in our walk with you, and more mature in in our holiness before you. Father God, we now join together and say the words that you taught us as we come before you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into together and I always feel when I come somewhere new it's good to introduce myself a little bit so I don't so I'm not as much of a stranger I mean I'm always going to be slightly strange but at least slightly less of a stranger so I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself but I'm really quite boring so that doesn't really go too well literally my life consists of about four things at the moment I work at the Baptist College which is great I have to be careful what I say with George sitting here. Um, I work at the Baptist College. I study for my PhD, um, which is mostly enjoyable. Uh, We'll put mostly in there. Um, I spend time with my lovely girlfriend, uh, and I play sport. 
Um, that's about the four things that I do. Those weren't in any particular order, because obviously sport would be number one up there. <laughs> it's well seen that my girlfriend lives in Manchester and is not with me today. Um, so those are about the four things that I do. I, I play three sports at the moment, badminton, basketball, and football. Um, I played badminton and basketball when I was in high school, and I haven't really played them for about 10 years, and just in this past year, I've uh, taken them back up. I'm not very good at them. At very best, I would say I'm adequate. That is probably what I'd say. I know which end of the badminton racket to hold. That's always a good start. Um, And I can usually hit the shuttlecock, which is also a good start. Now, did anyone watch the Olympics? Anyone at all? Yeah, good. That's going to make this a whole lot easier. Um, Does anyone have a favourite sport or a favourite sports star? Cycling. Who, who said that? Sorry. Cycling. Are you, are you going to watch the Tour of Britain today? It's starting in Glasgow. Yeah, I know. Church first. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm thinking the same. <laughs> Shall we just leave? No. <laughs> any, any, anyone else? Favourite sport or favourite sports star? Andy Murray. Also playing last night, wasn't it? Did you stay up? Did you manage to? You didn't didn't manage to. I think I got the results in at about three o'clock this morning or something like that. Uh, Yeah, there was one over here. We're going to say Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt. Excellent. Fastest man on the earth, apparently. Unless he's running more than 100 metres, in which case he's not that fast. (laughs) Uh, That's great. Anyone else? Don't want to miss anyone out. That's great. See... To become the top of your sport, you really have to commit yourself to a lot of practice. You have to dedicate your whole life to it. It's probably why I'm not very good at badminton or basketball or football. Uh, I was listening to the radio on my way to work this week, and there was an interview with Tom Daly, an Olympic diver. Probably most of you know him. Uh, and he was, he was saying that in these couple of weeks, the two or three weeks after the Olympics, he had some time off. And he's loving it because he doesn't have to get up early in the morning. He can do what he wants throughout his day because he's not having to spend so much time practicing. And he can eat what he wants because he's not on the diet that he needs to be on to become the best at diving that he can be. You see, it struck me that to be the best at the sport, to be right up there at the top, you have to dedicate your entire life. You have to commit yourself completely, 100% to your sport, you've got a special diet, you've got to practice several hours a day, you've got to get up early so that you can fit everything in. You really have to dedicate your entire life. Now, later on, we're going to be reading from Romans 12. And in Romans 12, it says we should offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, that sounds a pretty strange kind of term, a living sacrifice. But I want to say this morning that really what that means is that we dedicate and we commit our whole lives to God. Just in the same way that athletes and sports people have to dedicate and commit their whole lives to become the best that they can become. In order for us to become essentially the best Christians, the best followers of Jesus that we can become, we need to dedicate and commit our whole lives to God as well, 100% all the time. That's quite a challenge but to become the best people that we can be, to become the best followers of God that we can be, 
we're called to commit our entire life to God. So next time you watch any sport, next time you see Usain Bolt, you watch some cycling, you watch Andy Murray, I want you to think of the commitment and dedication that they've taken to get to that point in their career, to get to be the very best that they can be, and think how much better it is to commit and dedicate your life to God. So we're going to be exploring a little bit more about that later on, but I think that's a good place to start this morning. And as we reflect on that, we've got another hymn to sing, a children's hymn, I believe, all that I have. first reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12 beginning at verse 13. Some Pharisees and some members of Herod's party were sent to Jesus to trap him with questions. They came to him and said, teacher we know that you had you tell the truth without worrying about what people think You pay no attention to anyone's status, but teach the truth about God's will for people. Tell us, is it against our law to pay taxes to the Roman Emperor? Should we pay them or not? But Jesus saw through their trick and answered, Why are you trying to trap me? Bring a silver coin and let me see it. They brought him one, and he asked, Whose face and name are these? The emperor's, they answered. So Jesus said, Well then, pay the emperor what belongs to the emperor, and pay God what belongs to God. And they were amazed at Jesus. 
The second reading comes from Romans, chapter 12. So then, my brothers and sisters, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship that you should offer. Do not conform yourselves to the standards of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you will be able to know the will of God, what is good and is pleasing to him and is perfect. And because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. You should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given you. We have many parts in the one body, and all these parts have different functions. In the same way, though we are many, we are one body in union with Christ, and we are all joined to each other as different parts of one body. to be with you this morning. Um, it's, as I said earlier, it's a real privilege to be here, and, it, and it's somewhat poignant. It's, it's my first time at Hillhead, of course. I can't quite say it's a homecoming, but this area to me holds some value. I, I studied at Glasgow University for four years, just up the road. I did law and philosophy, um, so I've treaded these streets many times um, and spent four happy years there. I did then go over to Strathclyde University. Uh, to study a master's, so there's some internal tension there, um, but we'll, we'll leave that to one side for the moment. But the, the area holds some, some good memories for me, but not only that, my mum's dad and my, my granddad grew up in Mary Hill. He's a Mary Hill boy, he's a lifelong fan of Partick Thistle, um, so it's not too far away from here, so again, it's some family connections, but even closer than that, my dad actually grew up in Downhill Street, Downhill Road, um, just over the road there. So uh, many connections to this area down throughout my family's history. So it's really nice to be able to share this morning with you. I, I grew up in Glasgow. You can probably tell that from my accent. 
but I actually spent nearly nine years down in Manchester from beginning of about 2007 through to September last year, where I moved back up to start working at the Baptist College. It's been really nice coming back to Scotland, uh, reacquainting myself with some of the areas, and this summer being the first summer that I've spent here, I decided to do some traveling around Scotland. I went up to Aviemore area for a week with my family, which was great, celebrating my dad's 70th birthday, um, and, and it was great to have the family together there. But just in the past couple of weeks, uh, my girlfriend, as I mentioned, is down in Manchester, but she's actually from America originally, California of all places, um, and she really wanted to see Loch Ness. So we decided that we'd take a, a trip up to Loch Ness. So we drove uh, up the side of Loch Lomond, uh, out that way, Stopped off at Glenfinnan to see the viaducts, pay homage to Harry Potter. Um, then up the side of, of Loch Ness uh, to Inverness, stayed there, did Castle Urquhart, Loch Ness and, and such the next day. And then drove down the A9 side, down through Cairngorm, uh, Loch Morlach, uh, Blair Athlone and Killy Cranky. Now I'm not telling you this, I'm not going to whip out my holiday photos and start showing you my holiday snaps. But when you're going on a journey like that, you really need to make sure that you choose your company well. It was about a five-hour journey up there. Given that I'd gone with my girlfriend, it's, if we can't spend five hours in a car together, there's, there's probably something wrong with that. But more importantly, perhaps, is that you share a good taste in music. There's an awful lot of time to listen to music. And, and thankfully, we do share a fairly similar taste in music, but we do diverge when it comes to the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Perhaps slightly ironically, as, as the Brit, I much prefer the Beach Boys. And, and as the Californian, she prefers the Beatles, which perhaps is slightly odd. But we did agree on one album, which is Revolver, if anyone knows the Beatles well. It has some classics on it. Uh, I'm Only Sleeping is on it. Um, Eleanor Rigby, of course. Also has Yellow Submarine. I don't really like Yellow Submarine. That's the anomaly, I have to say. But it also has the song Taxman. And if anyone knows the song Taxman, the Beatles kind of wrote it almost as a pseudo-political protest song about everything at that time being taxed. It even has the line that the air that we breathe will be taxed. Um, tax seems to be this issue that, that transcends all time. It's been an issue that's vexed people for not just the past hundred years, but way back into the future. You probably know the, the common saying, there are two certainties in life death and taxes. These days it seems that taxes are probably more certain than even death sometimes. But it's not just a question that has been raised in the past hundred years or so. Right back even in Jesus' time, there were questions going on around about tax. And, and in our passage today, we see the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus with a question about tax. Should we pay tax to Caesar or should we not? Maybe in the background it's saying, should we pay our money to the temple, the temple tax, or should we pay it to Caesar? And Jesus answers, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And I want to look a little more about what that might mean for us today. What does it mean to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Tax is a, a vast subject, I think. When you think about it, it's really to do with the culture. We see Jesus picking up the coin and saying, whose face is on it? The Roman culture was woven in and out of the culture of Israel at the time. It was a bigger question than just to do with tax. It was saying, what culture do we align ourselves with? But you can also only go so far talking about tax and come up against the idea of politics. 
um, any of the recent discussions on Brexit or even the Scottish independence question, finally, you're probably going to have a question about taxation. What's going to happen with our taxes, with our money, with our currency? And so tax has to do with politics and also, as I say, has to do with money. How are we going to use our money? Who are we going to give our money to? Are we going to pay taxes? Are we going, who are we going to, how are we going to use our money well? So tax transcends a lot of different topics, cultural, sociological questions, uh, political questions, economic questions. So what was Jesus really trying to say here when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? Maybe he was making a comment on culture, a sociological comment. Maybe he was saying that, that we should separate ourselves from the culture of the time. The, the Roman culture would have been so interwoven with the Israelite uh, culture at the time. They were the occupying force and, and, and even their currency had the picture of Caesar on it. Everything was intermingled. And maybe Jesus was saying, actually, as God's people, we should separate ourselves from, from the culture of the world. Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr uh, wrote a book in the mid-1900s um, called Christ and Culture, and, and he outlined five positions on, on how the church, how Christians could relate to culture. And, and one of these positions was that, Christ against culture, that if we are God's people, then we should separate ourselves from, uh, from the culture that surrounds us. It says it's almost an inevitable position because God is so vast above us. He's, he's not of the world that if we are to align ourselves with God, then we can't also align ourselves with the world. And so he says there's this position that maybe we should separate as God's people from, from the world. But he comes to the conclusion and says, actually, it's an inadequate position. We're all part of culture. Even the language that we speak is bound up with culture. And, and although there are, there are uh, Christian movements that have tried to split themselves away, the Amish or, or even to an extent the, the Mennonites who have tried to separate themselves from culture, ultimately they're still making a statement on culture. Ultimately they create their own culture within their settlements, and they're never fully removed from culture. Even the language that they speak will have some kind of cultural influences upon it. And the position as well is maybe seen to a lesser extent in some very um, extreme conservative evangelicals who, who think that the world is, pollutes the Christian, and so people should be taken out of the world and, and be, kept, be kept safe in the Christian community. But not only does Niebuhr say it's inadequate because ultimately you're still going to be involved in culture one way or another. But he says, theologically, it doesn't stack up as well. Because in the incarnation, God came from being far off into the world. And Christ lived among us and dwelled among the world and in culture. And he says, this Christ against position doesn't really hold strong. And so I'm not sure that Jesus was making a statement about culture here or about the separation of culture. In fact, you can almost even interpret it another way. You can say, Jesus was saying, be involved with culture, pay your taxes, do your duty, be responsible, be responsible for the world around you, be involved in it. And so I don't think the statement was saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, was really saying anything about our separation. In fact, it might even have been a statement of saying, be involved, be rooted and grounded in the world around you. But maybe he was making a political statement. Uh, as I say, the Romans would have been the occupying force of the time. 
there was much talk that the Messiah, that the Savior would be the one that saves Israel and restores the nation of Israel. And there was much anticipation that Jesus was going to throw out the occupying force. In fact, we know there were many skirmishes and uprisings at the time, the Maccabean Revolt, for example, of trying to oust the occupying force. And so maybe Jesus was making something of a subtle comment on politics here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. Separate yourself from the occupying forces. Maybe he was giving some kind of legitimation to these political skirmishes. But I'm not sure that that's a right reading either. If you read the whole of Jesus' life, he was really a man of peace. He didn't really advocate for any kind of violent uprising. And in fact, on the cross, we see Jesus submitting to the authorities of the day. And so I don't think he was making a political statement. And even further on, if you read Paul, Paul says that our authorities, that our government are there to help give some kind of judgment, some kind of social control, and that we should live in peace underneath them. Perhaps a controversial interpretation of it, but it's certainly saying that the tension between religion and politics is very real. Even in the Old Testament, when Israel wanted a king, they were warned and says, well, kings and rulers can be uh, oppressors. They can oppress the people. So why do you want a king? So this relationship between Christianity, between religion and politics can get very strained, can be very tense. We see that throughout the whole of history. Some of the worst episodes in Christian history are when religion and politics have got mixed together, the Spanish Inquisition or, or the Crusades even. And perhaps even in our contemporary world, when you look to America and what's happening at the moment, the, the fact that we can motivate a, a Christian vote in America and some of the issues that they stand on are at least questionable. The, the relationship between religion and politics is fraught. And I'm not saying that if you choose to go into politics, that that's a bad thing, that's a personal choice. But really what I'm saying is there is a tension between religion and politics and how intermingled it should be or how separate we should be. And really, I've been talking about politics with a capital P, party politics. Because what Jesus isn't saying is that we should separate ourselves from the world. In fact, I think when we read scripture and the whole tenet of scripture, the, the idea that we are political people, that we are involved with the polis, the people around us, is, is undeniable. That we should be people that stand for justice, that we should be people who stand for freedom from oppression, that we should be people of equality. These are all political questions with a small p. And so I think even if this statement isn't saying something about politics with a big p, party politics, I think it is saying a question about about Jesus saying to us, we are to be involved in the world around us. We are to be involved in the issues around us. Tax was a very big issue. They were trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus was saying, well, here's an answer. Here's what I think about the people around us. So maybe it's not a statement on whether we should be involved in politics or not, but I don't think it gives us an option not to be political people. Maybe then it was a question of economics, of finance, Maybe Jesus was saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. The, the systems and structures of the world, the systems and structures of finance and economics are, are one thing, but separate yourself from, from being involved in that arena through to the arena of, of what is proper for God's worship. 
I don't want to go into too much depth about capitalism and consumerism, but at the very surface level, that is what our world operates under, that we buy into a capitalist and a consumerist world when we spend our money. And it's not necessarily that capitalism is all bad, but it certainly seems to be, particularly when it's tainted by human greed, it seems to be a way of disconnecting the people that do the work from the the money earned from the work. And so it allows the rich to get richer and, and the poor to stay poor. And we have to be aware that this is the way that our world operates. And, and as I say, at very least be aware of it. The consumeristic nature of our world also seems to disconnect us from where we buy our food or how our food is made or how our clothes are made. It seems to be that we, we are disconnected. Do we know where our food comes from? Do we know uh, the chemicals that are sprayed on them? Do we know how our animals are treated when we eat meat? Do we know the clothes that we wear? Do we know the conditions that the workers have been kept under? These are all big questions, but I think as Christians, we need to be aware of our world and the systems and structures that we buy into. Perhaps from the point of view that if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament is very clear about some of the agricultural laws. They say leave margins at the side of their fields so that those who are poor, those who can't feed themselves, have an opportunity to gather. There's a real connection between the production of an item and the people that are rewarded from it. There is always an emphasis on looking out for those who can't provide from themselves. Do we as Christians engage in that conversation? Are we involved in the issues of the world around us that are to do with finance and economics? Because I wonder when Jesus was saying, give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar, whether he wasn't making a statement and saying, be aware of the systems and structures that are around you that maybe aren't the things of God. All of this is quite interesting. All of this is quite big issues. Um, and I've really just, uh, really just grazed over the top of many of them. Capitalism, consumerism, politics, culture. All could have sermons written about them in multitudes. But really what I've been dealing with is give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I've not yet really said anything about give to God what is God's. What is it of ourselves that we are called to give to God? What is it that we have that we should offer up to God? Well, that's why we read Romans 12. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Seems to me that living sacrifices is an oxymoron. Two contradictory terms held in tension with one another. The context that it was that it was written in a sacrifice would very much have been associated with death, whether that was the sacrifice of an animal as an offering to give to God, or whether it had echoes as Paul was writing on the sacrifice of Christ. A living sacrifice. How can a sacrifice so associated with death really be living? Well, Paul says this is your spiritual act of worship. It's about your whole commitment. It's about the whole dedication. Probably can't say it any better than I said it earlier on. It is about committing your whole lives to God. It is our spiritual act of worship, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of the world. Something that I've kind of started to highlight in the dialogue this morning to say, be aware of the systems and structures around you. Don't, con- don't just 
buy into those systems and structures easily without an awareness, without thinking about what you're doing. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God is a God of transformation. And he's saying if we offer ourselves fully, then we will be transformed. But not only will we be transformed, but our community will be transformed. Paul was talking as the body, as a, as a corporate group, that we might all be transformed Not only for just our own personal gain, but that we might become agents of transformation in the world. Paul goes on to say, then you'll be able to know and test and approve what God's will is. What's God's will? Well, I think God's will is what he most wants to see in the world. And what does God most want to see in the world? He wants to see a world that is redeemed. And Paul's talked about that earlier. He talks in Romans 8 about the redemption of the entire creation. Not just as individuals, but the entire creation that will be redeemed and reconciled to him. But he does also talk about the individuals. Romans 5 talks about how we will have a reconciled relationship with God. God's will for the world to redeem the entire world, but also for each one of us to have a reconciled relationship to him. So when Paul talks about offering ourselves as living sacrifices, he's calling us to transformation as individuals, as a group, but he's more than that, he's calling us to become agents of transformation, to become the ones that carry out God's will on earth. Are we kingdom bearers? May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Are we the ones that step up to that challenge that say, we are the living sacrifices, dedicated and committed to bringing God's will to fruition, which is his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Maybe it's a question of culture. Maybe it's a sociological question. Maybe it's a question of politics. Maybe it's a question of economics and finance. It may well be all of these things. It may well be how we engage with culture. It may well be how we engage with the world around us. But even more than that, it is about our priority of dedicating and committing our whole lives both individually and as a corporate group, to becoming agents of transformation, to becoming the people that carry out God's will in the world. I hope that that's been somewhat challenging. It probably has been so many big issues. And hopefully throughout the week, some of these things will echo as you go about your daily business. But I hope as well it's been encouraging that God calls us into a reconciled relationship with us. I hope it's encouraging that he calls us to be transformed and to be agents of transformation. I hope it encourages each one of us to become those sorts of people. So I hope it's been a challenge and an encouragement that will stay with you throughout the rest of the week. As we come to reflect on that, we're going to sing another hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Is that not our prayer for this morning? Is that not our hope that our entire life will be committed dedicated and consecrated to God.
And so we bring our prayers for others. Loving God, as we bring you our prayers for others, we are acutely aware that we live in two worlds. We live in this world of time and space, where everything is provisional and the struggle for justice and peace is unrelenting. But we are also citizens of your eternal kingdom of shalom. So we acknowledge that we live for now in a world where the pursuit of wealth and property is given free reign, where in order for some to be rich, others must be made poor. And so we pray for those who, no matter how hard they try, can't find paid work. For those who work long hours, but at the end of the week still don't take home enough money for their families to live on. For those on zero hours contracts, who don't know from week to week how much they'll earn. For those living on a fixed income with no way of supplementing it. We give thanks for those who campaign on behalf of the poor, church action on poverty, Christians Against Poverty, Glasgow City Mission. Help us where we can to unite our voices with theirs, to lobby government for a realistic living wage, for fairer trade, to do what we can to work for a more just distribution of the good things that you have provided. We acknowledge that we live for now in a world obsessed by title and by rank, where the privileged few seem content to take full advantage of the benefits that their status confers, apparently untroubled by the many who feel that they have no stake at all in our society, that they have no value, no worth. We pray for those who feel that there is no place for them at the table, Nothing that they can offer. No reason to be present in our world. And so often lose themselves in addictions of one kind or another. We give you thanks that in your kingdom there is no status. No titles. No favourites that you love each and every one of us 
as if we were your only child. Help us this week to see the people that we meet with your eyes, to love them as you love them, that they may find their true worth in you. We acknowledge that we live for now in a world where peace is hard to find. Our hearts break for the people of Syria and for the many thousands of Syrians who have left their homeland to seek refuge in Europe. We give thanks for all who work for peace or who have opened their borders or their homes to welcome asylum seekers. Give us open hearts and open arms and the resolve to work for that true peace that comes not from military might nor from the vigilance of security forces but from right relationships and just structures. God of love, you have called us to live in this world as citizens of that other world, to live lives of true integrity. So help us to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with you this day and every day. Amen. We're now going to uplift the offering.
Amen. We're also now going to move into a time of communion. And let's sing our communion hymn together. As we come to the table, in many senses, I think it should be somewhat evident why communion is such a pertinent way to respond to what we've heard this morning. We see the elements in front of us, the bread representing Christ's body, the wine representing his blood, very much things of life, body and blood, very much things of his incarnation, of dwelling among us. And yet also, when we come to the table, we remember his sacrifice. We remember that it is the body that was broken for us. We remember that it was the blood that was shed for us. As we come to the table, there is probably no greater example, no greater image of Christ as a living sacrifice, coming to dwell among us, dying for us, and then being resurrected 
back to life. And so as we come to the table, as we share in this fellowship, we share together committing ourselves to become part of that body. Paul talks further in Romans about how we are one body, the body of Christ. And that is what we remember when we come and share the elements, the sacrament of communion together, the body broken for us and the blood shed for us. In Luke 22, Jesus says, I have eagerly desired to share this meal with you. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So let us now take the bread and share it among us. And then we will take the wine and we'll drink it together. If you take the bread and we'll eat it on when you receive it, and we'll take the wine and we'll drink it together.
going to read from Ephesians 3, a blessing about being one in family. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and in earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Thank you.